All right. We'll track down a Bible if you can and get with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. We are doing a series going through the first chapter of the book of James to help us navigate these troubling times. James was a pastor of, he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. His church was scattered on account of persecution. Uh, He then writes to them to help them navigate the difficulties of the moment. And so we're listening to his voice. We're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit through him, helping us to navigate this incredible year that we found ourselves in. So I'm going to read the passage, then we'll pray and we will get to work. James chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, that you would speak over us. We pray, God, that your voice would come through your word loud and clear. God, we need help. This is one of the most incredible seasons, certainly the most incredible season in the life of our church. But in the life of our nation, in the life of our world, Lord, this is just a really, really hard moment. And so we ask, God, that you would help your people hear from you And you would help us to live by faith in the Son of God. So, Lord, we commit these minutes to you, and we ask that you would bless them. We ask, Lord, that you would use them to help your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we've got an error to avoid, and we've got a truth to apply. We've got an error to avoid. James, right out of the gate here in verse 16, is telling us that we are going through a difficult moment, and we have to be careful because it's possible for us to miss handle this moment. Now, remember, we're going through trials and the point of trials are to bring about maturity. Christians are people who can go through difficult things, but we can count it all joy because we understand that the purpose of the trial is to bring about this maturity, that if we have perseverance in our faith, then perseverance, having completed its work, brings us this maturity, this Christian maturity, but we need wisdom for that because that doesn't often come naturally. So we're going through hard things and we're believing that God can use them to make us more mature, to make us more wise. But within that trial, there's a danger. And the danger is the temptation to sin. That when we are going through difficulties, we find in ourselves these temptations, these desires within us that are claiming our allegiance and asking us to do things that don't sync up with what God actually wants. And so James here is telling us there is an error that we need to avoid. And he's saying to us, don't be tricked. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. He's saying this in a very passionate way. You can hear the language. He's saying, my family, please don't be tricked by the difficulty of this moment. Brothers and sisters, please listen to my plea. Do not be fooled in this moment, you see the stakes are very high in the midst of trials. And so I'm joining James and saying to you as the church family, please do not be deceived in this moment. I know I've cashed in some, some credibility lately, speaking into hard subjects and dealing with issues of the day that are challenging, that people have different opinions on and different perspectives on. 
So with whatever shred of credibility I still have left, I'm asking you, I'm saying with James, family, please do not be deceived. Don't be tricked by this moment. Don't, one version says it like this, don't deceive yourself. It's not just that you could be tricked. It's sometimes that you're tricking yourself. This morning as I woke up early and stabbed my lip with my flossing thingy, the little piece of plastic, I went out and I was reading my Bible and I came across this verse and it's Proverbs 21 verse two. And here's what it says. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Don't deceive yourself. In this moment, isn't it funny? And we said this last week, but isn't it funny that you are always right? Right? You look at the circumstances, you've got a strong opinion about everything that's happening. And when you interpret the events of the day, your consideration of your opinion is you're right. And there are a lot of other people out there who are incredibly wrong. And this is reminding us it is possible to deceive ourselves. Church fam, do not be deceived. Now, what is this error? What is this deception? I think that there are different aspects of it. One of the ways that we're deceived is to look at the trial of the moment and to believe that we're not up to the task. Some of us are despairing right now. We're looking at the challenge and we're saying, I can't handle this. God, I don't know why you are allowing this to happen because this is just way too much for me. That's one of the lies of the temptation. We believe that we cannot handle it, that the trial is too grand to overcome. In another place in the New Testament, it puts it like this, where it reminds us this cannot be the case. If you are a believer, this cannot be true. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It's reminding us that you're going to go through stuff. And yes, you can, if you're just looking at your own resources, it is well beyond what you can bear. But if God is with you, he is giving you something that is common to mankind and that he will help you through. So don't believe the lie that you're not up to the task, that with God's help, you can't make it through this. Believe that God will give you everything that you need to be successful in enduring through this. Now I'm going to tease that out in a little bit so we'll move quickly through it. But one of the ways that we deceive ourselves is to believe we can't handle it. Another way that we are deceived is we pass blame. Again, when you look at the very first temptation event in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, they, Adam and Eve, the original humanity, they say of God, they, they move away from God, they disregard him. And when God confronts him, them, remember how that plays out? Adam what have you done? And what is his excuse? What does he say? It's not my fault. It's that woman you gave me. One of the temptations, one of the errors that we can make in the midst of a temptation is to pass blame and to say, it's not my fault. It's her fault. And she says, it's not my fault either. It's that serpent that you allowed in here. God actually, here's that kind of at the base of it. It's really your fault. Why would you allow us to have this opportunity and, and you can't expect for us to have been totally obedient and totally compliant in this moment. One of the temptations, one of the deceptions in the moment of the trial is to pass the blame, but probably the most prevalent thing is to question the goodness of God. 
the one that's probably closest to the surface of this text is to question God's goodness, to look at what you're going through and, and come to the conclusion that if this is the case, if this is what you're going through, then maybe God's just not that great. Maybe he's not that good. That was what happened in Genesis chapter three. The question, really, if you read the account again, you'll notice that kind of underneath all of it was this question, does God really have my best intention in mind? Does he really have my best interest in mind? And we question the goodness of God in that way. And it appears as though he's withholding goodness from us. And that's what we can trick ourselves into believing. That this is so hard that maybe God just doesn't like me. Or maybe there isn't a happy ending to this thing. Maybe this is what it is. One of the other ways that we can trick ourselves is to demand our own way. We've seen that already. In fact, uh, last week we were looking at verse 14 and what did it tell us? It told us that we have these desires within us that we so badly want. And these desires, they're not often helpful because they lead us to do things that, that are sinful. It puts it like this. It says that it, we are tempted when our own evil desires entice us. We look at something and we go, I got to have that. And having that would bring me joy and having that would bring me life and having that would feel like heaven on earth. And we think that, the, that to obtain that would be the greatest thing in the world. But here's what we find out. We don't just get that thing. We don't just get that desire fulfilled. That desire gets us. It captures us. It tells us that it drags us away and it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. One of the ways that we deceive ourselves is to think that we have to have it our way. That in this moment, the most important thing is that people would come to view the world the same way that you do. And that the narrative that you're telling of how this thing happily ends, you're saying this is the only way it's going to work. And James is reminding us, be careful of your desires. Be careful of telling yourself you have to have it the way that you imagine because the truth is that desire might be wrong. And that desire might take you captive and might cause you to sin and do great harm to you. James in chapter 4 he, he spells it out in their relationships. He's asking his church, do you understand why you're fighting with each other? Do you understand why there are quarrels and fights? Why we're suffering mightily because we've been persecuted and displaced. And now you're looking at each other and you're, you're, you're doing harm. You're saying harsh words. You're mean-spirited. You're doing all these different things. And he's telling us that these fights and these quarrels are coming from demanding your own way. I'm going to show it to you. You can look on the screens in James 4 verses 1 and 2. It puts it like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. It's saying, look, the problem is that you want something so badly that you would harm somebody else if you can't get your way. That's deceiving yourself. That's believing that that thing you so desperately want is the best thing for you. And God is saying, no, I, that is not right. If you're willing to be covetous, if you're willing to be murderous in your heart toward other people, if you're willing to look at other people and call them names because they don't see the world the same way that you do, aren't those those evil desires that are springing up within you? and causing those quarrels and fights among you. 
Here's what I'm, I've been thinking about this week. It is possible to think that you are a crusader for truth when you're really just a tyrant. To think that you've got this thing totally figured out and you're going to explain it to everyone else and you're going to win people over to this interpretation of the world events right now. And if they can't get it, then they're just kind of dumb or stupid or misinformed or whatever you might say. And you might think that you're a crusader for truth when in reality you're a tyrant. And you, you have this evil desire in you that's causing you to do harm to other people. So we have to be careful, don't we? That we we want to avoid this error. We don't want to be the kind of people who are mean-spirited and harsh, who are unreasonable, who are uncharitable. We, we want to be people who understand that God is a good God and whatever it is that we're going through, he's superintending the whole process. He's working in us to bring maturity. He's working in other people. There, there are good things in the world that we're going to find along the way. I'm going to show that to you in just a moment. So we need to be careful about this error that comes from within. Now you might say, okay, Cor, well, how do, I, how do I do this? Okay, what does that actually look like? What does that mean? And as we're interacting with the world right now, let me just kind of give you just a very easy criteria to kind of evaluate your engagement with other people right now who maybe think different than you or act different than you. When you are dealing with people, did Jesus or did he not command us to love our enemies and pray for them? He did. We should be loving those who are different from us. Now, let me tell you a little Bible story that'll help to illustrate this. When Jesus and his disciples were going toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, they were traveling and they went to a Samaritan village and they weren't welcomed there. They, there was a difference of life experience. There was a difference of opinions. There was just differences there. And so there was a hostility, kind of an open hostility. And so the disciples said to Jesus, they asked him, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and torch these suckers? And Jesus took them aside and he rebuked them. So here's my criteria for you. When you're dealing with somebody who thinks different than you, are you acting like the disciples who need to be rebuked? Meaning, are you saying to the Lord, obviously my way is right and these people don't agree with it. So let's destroy them. And Jesus can take us aside and he can say, that is not my way. That is not my heart. That is not my desire. So we need to be people who are careful about this error. We can be deceived in this moment. So let's check our hearts. Let's check ourselves. And let's trust that God is at work. So that's the error to avoid. Secondly, we have a truth to apply. So if the temptation is to believe that we have the corner on truth or that the goodness of God is in question. We, we need to apply this truth to our life. And here's what it is. God is good and he gives good gifts. And those gifts can be found all over the place. That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. He's a good God. He gives good gifts. And those gifts are all over the place. Let's look at verse 17, just at the beginning there. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above. One of the things that this reminds us of is this doctrine of common grace. It's something that maybe churches don't talk enough about, but the doctrine of common grace is the reality that God's goodness isn't only found in the believing community. It's scattered all over the place. The goodness of God is distributed in all these different places. Every good gift is from God. 
and it can be found in some pretty bizarre places. We need to be a people who celebrate that, who can look at even our enemies and we can acknowledge the goodness of God resident in them in some capacity. We need to be willing to say that there, there's a goodness that I need to be willing to find, that I need to be careful about how I'm dealing with other people who are made in the image of God. I need to treat them with respect and dignity. And I need to be able to find any aspects of their experience that I can affirm that there's something good in them. I don't want to villainize them. I don't want to do harm to them. I want to recognize the goodness of God wherever I find it. Now, another truth that's being suggested here is that God is giving us everything that we could possibly need. God gives us what we need and he withholds from us nothing that we would need. Okay, so we're going through COVID-19, political unrest, social unrest, one of the truths that we have to apply to our hearts is to say, God is good and presently he is giving me everything that I could possibly need for this moment. I'm not under-resourced. I'm not, I'm, I'm not out in the depths. God is going to give me every good gift that I need for this moment. So I'm going to trust him. God is the OG. He's the real OG, the, the real original goodness, Right? Goodness originates with God himself. It's a part of who he is. He is the one who is entirely good and he is the creator of goodness and every good thing that we find is coming from him. Every good and perfect gift is from above. He is the unchanging father who knows what's best. Look at the second half of verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from above, coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Here's what it's saying. God is the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars. He is light itself and he is the creator of all these heavenly bodies and he doesn't change like they change. We have day and night. We have light and darkness and we have shifting shadows. At the beginning of the morning, I was like, oh no, I'm in the middle. I'm gonna get torched. And then the shadow moved and I was like, perfect. I'm gonna be in the shade while I preach. Okay, the, things are changing, but God doesn't change. He is unchangingly good. He is always good. He is permanently good, and he alone is entirely good. Now, he has this permanent goodness about him that he is distributing with a fatherly wisdom. This makes a lot of sense to me. I've got a seven-year-old. I've got a five-year-old daily I have to say things to my kids to remind them, you don't always get what you want, right? I'm not always going to say yes. I'm not always going to give you the desires of your heart. There are plenty of times where that would actually not be good, where that would actually be harmful. And I have to say to my kids, no, you can't have three donuts for breakfast, for instance. No, you can't you know, do these different things that could harm you. No, you can't jump off the top railing of the deck onto the ground. You'll probably break a limb. I have to say things to them that they want to do, but there's a fatherly wisdom about it that's saying, look, I'm going to withhold something that you think is necessary for your happiness, that you think is ultimately the best thing for you, but you just don't have that perspective. Now, in this moment, we're looking at God and we're saying, God, why aren't you doing it my way? Why aren't you fixing things? Why hasn't this virus gone away? Why are people reacting the way that they're reacting? And we're, we're, we're saying, God, do what I want. 
But the goodness of God shows up in his fatherly wisdom. He's able to say, I know what's best for you even when you don't. And I might withhold some things from you that you think are absolutely critical for your happiness. They're not. I'm gonna do something even better than you could dream up. So God is a good God. And we combat this error of self-deception, of questioning the goodness of God or demanding to have our own way. We, we combat this by applying the truth that God is good and he gives us all the good we could need and anything that we think we need and we don't have, we must not actually need it. That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. God is good and his goodness is seen in the most incredible way in the salvation that we have. That's what James suggests in the next verse. In verse 18, he tells us that salvation, if you want to believe in the goodness of God, look at how he saves people. Look at your salvation. Verse 18 uh, is showing us that, that anyone is saved is the greatest proof of God's ability to give good gifts. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. God, the heavenly father, the father of heavenly lights, he chose to give us birth. Not just physical birth, he chose to give us a spiritual birth. He chose to bring us to spiritual life. The Bible tells us we are spiritually dead before we come to believe in Jesus Christ and then we're made alive. And that reality is being born again. That's what Jesus taught in John chapter three. It's called being born from above or being born again. And God chose to give us that sort of spiritual birth through this word of truth. So if anyone is a Christian, it is evidence of God's goodness. If you are a Christian, what you need to be doing is examining the fact that you are a saved individual, reminding yourself constantly of your salvation and the evidence then that God loves you and is good and is doing good for you. So this salvation, how does it come? We're told in verse 18, it is through this word of truth. People are born again when the word of truth is preached and heard and responded to. The word of truth, if you look at it in the New Testament, it's this message of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 1, 13, it says to another church, you've heard the message of truth, the word of truth, comma, here's what it is, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is the good news of the gospel. It's the gospel of God loving you enough to send his son to go to Calvary to die in your place a great exchange, his life for yours, his righteousness for your unrighteousness, a swap in exchange. And by your believing in him, you receive salvation and you are born again. First, uh, First Peter 1 puts it like this in verses 23 and 25. Again, explaining what this word of truth is. You've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Then he goes on to explain what that word is. This is the word that was preached to you. So how is anyone saved? People are saved when the spirit of God takes the message of the gospel and brings it to life in somebody, causing them to be born again. And this is God's intention. This is his design. There are some of you who are watching right now, some of you who are listening right now, who God is doing that work in this moment. The good news of the gospel is so powerful that it brings people to spiritual life. And if that is true, here's the, here's the takeaway. God is good. He is supremely good. If he is a savior 
He's able to bring about spiritual reality in you. He will see that through to the end. And that's where James goes with this. He tells us that there is this grand finale of the gospel. You're saved past tense. Some of us can look back on a day when we decided to follow Christ, when we committed our lives to Christ. Some of us can look at the day when we made that public and we were baptized and we declared our allegiance to him and were buried in the waters of baptism and raised to new life and filled with the Holy Spirit of God and all these different things. And we can look back on that salvation and we can take comfort in that. I'm saved. God is good. But there's also a saving work that's happening right now, is there not? That's a whole, the whole point of the trials and the testing and the maturity that's happening in us. God is saving us. He's revealing new expressions of unbelief and he's addressing them. And then we repent and we confess and we believe and we experience Christian growth. And that's what we're going through right now in this very hard season. But then there's this grand finale that we should be anxiously awaiting. Let's look at verse 18. It's described in this way. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What is that saying? Do you know when you make a batch of cookies and you're going to bring it over to the, to the neighbor's house? A responsible chef does this. They take a cookie and they try it, right? Because you want to be sure of what's to come. You want to be sure that what, you, what you've made is going to be desirable. You, you, you take one of the first cookies and you try it out. Here's what God has done in his saving work. He saved us. He's saving us. But listen, one day he's going to come. Jesus is going to return and we're going to be glorified. It's going to be the best day ever. And in the meantime, here's what he's saying. You're a first fruit. You're like, the, you're like that batch of cookies. You're like the first one out. And you, you're kind of a preview of coming attractions. That a Christian is somebody who is the first fruit in the, the create, recreation work that Christ is doing in the world. So you look at you and you go, okay, God is doing a work in me. And one day that work will be complete. But I'm evidence of God's goodness. And I'm proof of what's to come. There's a day when Jesus is going to come back and, and he's going to remake. He's going to renew the world. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to reconcile the world to himself. And that's going to be the grand finale of all of history. You can read about it at the end of the Bible. It is a beautiful picture of God's saving work coming to its fulfillment. But here's what we do in the meantime then. We trust in the goodness of God, believing that we're saved people, believing that the best is yet to come, believing that the present trials are an opportunity, an arena for us to grow in godliness, to become mature. And we believe that in the midst of this, that God is faithfully at work, that his goodness is on display. In Revelation, when Jesus writes to a church that's enduring suffering, here's what he says. He says, to him who overcomes, to the person who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. We're going through a hard time right now and Jesus is reminding us, I'm good. My salvation is proof of that. The work that's coming down the pipe, you're going to be so thrilled by that. It's going to eclipse every difficult thing you're presently going through. The best is yet to come. And to those who overcome, I will give that crown of life. Be faithful. Be faithful to the end. Recognize that you could deceive yourself. Continue to go to God, asking for his wisdom, asking for his guidance. 
So we have an error to avoid. The trial isn't too big for God. The goodness of God isn't up for debate. Our desires might not be the final indication of faithfulness. So we have a truth to apply. God is good. And his goodness is seen in our salvation. And we look forward to the day when that salvation comes fully true, when Jesus returns. Let's build our life on that truth. So I'm gonna pray right now. I would ask that you would join me by bowing your heads and we'll talk to God about it right now. Lord, right now, by your spirit, I'm asking that you would bring people to spiritual life. The gospel is good news and people come to life by hearing and responding to that news. Lord, I pray right now for anyone who's watching online or sitting here in the wedding garden, would you bring them to spiritual life? Awaken them to the reality of who you are and what you've done and what that means. And God, for all of us as a church family, we want to be wise. We recognize the potential to deceive ourselves, to be tricked in this moment. And so, Lord, we're asking that you, by your spirit, would give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to navigate this moment appropriately, Lord. Help us to be your kingdom people, giving people a preview of what's to come, being a a walking illustration of the goodness of God, a first fruits of what you're going to do one day. Lord, help us to be those people for your sake. Amen. Amen.